I'm just going to apologize right now because this episode, oh man, it's a wordy one. I tried my best to make the definitions make sense and keep the jargon to a minimum, but if you're listening to this podcast as a way to study for the exam, I really wanted to keep some of the important terms and jargon in for you. But I'm going to apologize to everyone right now and say that there are a lot of not-so-fun words and this really wasn't a fun one to try and break down. I'm sure there's an easier way to say the things that I'm about to share, but I just couldn't do it. Anyway, today's topic is going to be all about behavior. Welcome to the Just Talks ABA podcast. With me, I'm Jess, a BCBA who is still trying to navigate the big world of applied behavior analysis. Join me as I try to break down common topics of applied behavior analysis and attempt to make things make just a little bit more sense. Before I dive into today's podcast, I wanted to share that the majority of the information that I gathered for today's episode is from the Cooper, Heron, and Heward textbook. I have a citation and a link to their newest edition in the podcast description, so all credit where credit is due. So, what is behavior? Why is it important? thought I would get things started by giving you a really wordy technical definition provided by Cooper, Heron, and Heward. Ready? Behavior is... The activity of living organisms. Human behavior includes everything that people do, including how they move, what they say, think, and feel. Understanding behavior is important so that we can understand why behaviors are happening and so that we can describe and measure it. All right, so let's walk through some examples of behavior. Eating a cookie is behavior. So is riding your bike, cooking your favorite meal, petting your dog, talking on your phone, even listening to a podcast, all of these things qualify as behaviors. There are a few other things to consider when defining a behavior, such as requiring a change in the environment or a displacement in place through time. But to keep things simple, let's focus on the part where it says that behavior is everything that people do. And we'll move on to how to easily tell if something qualifies as a behavior or not. Ogden Lindsley, and I really hope I'm saying his name right, introduced the dead man's test in 1965 as a helpful way to determine if something qualifies as a behavior and whether it doesn't. Then, in 2004, Maylot and Suarez, again, hope I'm saying their names right, provided us with a pretty witty quote that summarizes the dead man's test pretty well, and that is, If a dead man can do it, it ain't behavior. And if a dead man can't do it, then it is behavior. Now let's go ahead and break down the dead man's test and what it actually looks like with a few examples. The first example is that you're sitting outside in a chair beside your, you know, your dead man friend, and it starts to rain, and both of you get wet. In this case, is getting wet a behavior? If you answered no, you would be correct. In this example, if you were sitting outside next to your friend, your dead friend, um, and it started to rain, you would both have the same result of getting wet from the rain. Getting wet does not qualify as behavior in this example because it takes zero action from you to get wet. Let's try another one. Let's say you wake up from a night of drinking and you have a terrible headache, so you take Tylenol to make the headache go away. Is taking Tylenol a behavior? If you answered yes, this is correct. A dead man cannot take Tylenol. And to break it down even further, we could describe in detail what taking Tylenol would look like. For example, picking up the bottle, opening the bottle, shaking a pill into your hand, putting the pill into your mouth, and swallowing the pill. 
Can a dead man do any of these things? No. Therefore, taking Tylenol is a behavior. Now to get a little bit more technical. Remember, I warned you. It's time. (laughs) Behaviors can be described by their form, also known as response topography, which means what the behavior physically looks like. Or it can be described by its function, which means why the behavior is happening. For example, the response topography, also known as the form of a behavior, can be explained as what it looks like when someone is opening a bag of chips or putting on makeup. The function of the behavior, however, is why someone is doing something, and they can use many different behaviors to get to the end result. So let's revisit the example of opening a bag of chips and how this relates to a behavior's function. You can open a bag of chips by pinching either side with your fingers and pulling the seal apart. You can be an absolute heathen and rip the corner of the bag down halfway, exposing the chips inside. Seriously, why do people open bags of chips like this? You can't even seal it up properly when you finish. Um, You could cut the bag open with a knife or a pair of scissors, or you could place a bag of chips onto the table and pop it with a closed fist. Each one of these behaviors meet the same function, opening the bag of chips. And each one of these actions that I listed as a way to open the bag of chips is an example of a behavior's form or response topography. When we examine behaviors that may look physically different but serve the same purpose, like we talked about with opening a bag of chips, this is what we call a response class. A response class is a group of responses or behaviors that all serve the same function. Have I lost you yet? Stay with me. Let's review what we've talked about so far. Behavior is everything that a person does, and it can be heard or seen. If a dead man can do it, it's not behavior. But if a dead man cannot do it, it is behavior. Behavior can be described by its form, also known as the response topography. This means what the behavior looks like. Behaviors can also be defined by its function or why the person is doing something. A group of behaviors that may look physically different but serve the same function, such as the example with opening the bag of chips, is called a response class. Okay, let's move along. Now we're going to talk about the environment. The environment's important because all behavior occurs within the environment, and it can't really exist without one. One way that behavior analysts describe the things that happen in our environment is by referring to things called stimulus conditions or stimulus events. Essentially, a stimulus condition is something that affects a person or an organism through its receptor cells. This can be a stimulus outside of the body, such as something that we hear, see, smell, or feel, or inside the body, such as feeling our stomach digest food, having a pain in our foot, or a headache. In a nutshell, think of stimulus conditions as anything that would be perceived by our senses. Typically, our behaviors occur because of a change in the environment or a stimulus condition. For example, if I am sitting in a meeting room at work and the air conditioning comes on, at first I might be fine, but eventually I might start to feel cold. This stimulus change of going from warm to cold air resulted in me feeling cold. So I engaged in warmth-seeking behavior. Maybe I start to rub my hands on my arms to feel warm, but I still feel cold. So I put on a sweater. And that doesn't work. I'm still cold. So eventually, I step outside into the parking lot for a few minutes to warm up in the sun. In this example, the stimulus change was the change from warm air to cold air. 
The function of my behavior was to get warm because I felt cold. I went through a response class of behaviors, that is rubbing my hands on my arms, putting on a sweater, and eventually going outside to stand in the sun to feel warm. The response topography of each behavior, which was rubbing my hands, putting on a sweater, and going outside, may look different, but the function stayed the same. I was cold. I wanted to be warm. Again, this behavior happened because of a change in my environment. And I think I might have just used stimulus change and stimulus condition interchangeably, but just know that when I said stimulus change, I really meant stimulus condition or a stimulus event. Um, Okay, moving along. I think the last two things that I'll cover today are the two categories of behavior. Behavior can be divided into unlearned behavior and behavior that is learned. These two categories of behavior are called respondent and operant behavior. Respondent behavior is behavior that we as humans enter the world with. We don't have to learn these behaviors. For example, we know how to breathe, we know how to blink, we flinch when something is thrown our way, we squint or our pupils restrict when we see bright lights. All of these behaviors are reflexive. We don't have to be taught how to do these things. One key thing to keep in mind is that respondent behavior is elicited by antecedent stimuli. This means that respondent behavior happens because something happened, like a stimulus change happened, before, which is the antecedent, the behavior occurred. For example, I'm baking cookies, likely pre-made cookies that I don't have to mix from scratch because if you remember from my last episode, I can't bake very well. So I'm baking cookies and I open the oven and I touch the pan, but I forgot to wear an oven mitt and I immediately feel pain, so I pull my hand away. In this case, the heat from the pan, which is the antecedent or what happened before the behavior, caused me to feel pain, which elicited the reflexive behavior of pulling my hand away. I did not have to learn how to pull my hand away. I already knew how to do this. Side note, one way that I kept the distinction in my brain between respondent and operant behavior was by repeating to myself over and over, respondent reflexive, respondent reflexive, respondent reflexive. Just thought I would throw that in there as a helpful tip. Operant behavior, on the other hand, is behavior that is shaped or maintained by a history of consequences that follow it. In other words, it is learned. For example, We all learn how to tie our shoes, how to feed ourselves, how to get dressed, read, or even laugh at jokes. All of these things have been shaped by the consequences of learning these actions. Let's take a closer look at telling jokes. If I were to learn and then tell an absolutely hilarious joke to my friend, which would be the behavior, and my friend were to genuinely laugh at the joke, which would be the consequence, I would probably be more likely to tell a joke to my friend in the future because I was rewarded or reinforced by her laughing. Therefore, I will probably tell more jokes in the future because I enjoy hearing my friend laugh after I told the joke. Now, if I were to tell this joke to my friend, again, the behavior, and my friend didn't laugh, but instead she rolled her eyes and said nothing, the consequence, I would probably feel very awkward and uncomfortable and would probably not tell that joke to her again. In this example, my behavior has been shaped and I will probably tell less jokes in the future because I did not like the consequence that followed it. My friend looked irritated and rolled her eyes. These two examples also kind of demonstrate the difference between reinforcement and punishment, but I think that's best saved for another episode. Let's look at another example before I wrap things up. Apparently, I love baking episode or examples, so let's just go with this. 
My friend from the last episode wrote me a brand new recipe for a cake with all of the correct measurements, ingredients, the required baking temperature and time and steps. Anyone remember what the dimension this is? Fugus Technological, you are correct. You win nothing. I'm sorry. (laughs) So I have now learned how to follow along with the recipe and bake a cake. The end result being a delicious cake. In the future, I will be more likely to follow a recipe step by step because it worked the last time. However, if I followed a recipe and I didn't get a delicious cake or didn't taste good, I would probably not follow a recipe in the future. I think I'm going to leave it at that today. I've said behavior so many times now that it's starting to just sound like a strange word. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Just Talks ABA podcast. You can find more information about today's episode in the podcast description. Join me next week or next episode. I'm not sure when I'm uploading these yet, but join me next time when I talk about, I'm not sure. I might talk about operant and respondent conditioning or the four functions of behavior. I haven't quite decided yet, but anyway, if you enjoyed this podcast, please hit subscribe or tell a friend. I would be so grateful. You can find me on Instagram at JessTalksABA. That's Jess.Talks.ABA. Thank you for listening and I'll catch you in the next episode.